as we continue on in our Revelation series this evening, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 12. But before we dive into that passage, I want you to talk about this question at your table. So make sure you know everyone's name at your tables. And then I want you to talk about this question. If you could choose one weapon to go into battle with, what would it be? If you could choose one weapon to go into battle with, what would it be? I realize this is kind of a masculine question, but ladies, you can think of something, you know. Maybe you'd send an army of Swifties on somebody, but if you could go into battle with one weapon, what would it be? Terrible transition, but tonight we are going to be talking about the greatest battle ever, and we're not going to talk about bringing spaghetti utensils into battle, but um, we will talk about the weapon we do get to bring into this great battle that we are all a part of, whether we know it or not and what part we have to play in that battle. And so with that, we are going to dive into Revelation chapter 12. And as we've done uh, since we started the series, we're going to stand together out of reverence for God's word. And we will read Revelation chapter 12 tonight. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant. And cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. And there was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son a male who was going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she, was placed, where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come. And because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives even to the point of death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had, been, who had given birth to the male child. The woman who was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness, where she was nourished for a time, times and a half a time. From his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from its mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman, and he went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, 
those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. And the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. May God bless this reading of his holy word. You may be seated. So much of what we have talked about in Revelation up to this point has dealt with some really fascinating and strange and hard to interpret symbolism. But actually, one of the unique things about our passage tonight is that once you get your head into the world of Revelation symbolism, the meaning of our passage is actually pretty straightforward and clear. And that's a good thing. Because a lot of scholars would say Revelation chapter 12 is arguably the most central and pivotal part of the whole book. It's one of the clearest expositions of the point of Revelation. For all that we do to make Revelation complicated, and and, and admittedly there are a number of details that are hard to understand, the message of Revelation, when we zoom out, we don't miss the forest for the trees, we see that Revelation's plot is simple. We will either fight for the army of the dragon or the army of the lamb. And in the end, the army of the lamb wins because of what the lamb has done. It's as simple as that. That is Revelation's big picture story right there. And we get to ask ourselves that question. Will we fight for the army of the dragon or the army of the lamb? And it's not a question of whether or not we will fight because we are all part of this battle whether or not we realize it, all of us. Even if you are the most Enneagram 9 peacemaker the world has ever seen, you are part of this battle. All of us are part of this great war. And so what I really want to do tonight is we look at this pivotal chapter in Revelation is I want to break it down first because we can really look at it in three parts. I want to break it down and then I want to talk through some application and what it means for our lives so we can get a clue on what this great battle is that we are a part of. So let's start by looking at part one of Revelation 12. This is verses one to six. Look with me at your Bibles or your scripture notebooks. In this section, if we were to summarize it, we see a woman about to give birth and a great dragon ready to devour her baby. And when the woman gives birth, the dragon kills her baby and the baby is brought up to God while the woman flees into the wilderness where she is protected by God for 1,260 days. And so that's the summary of what happens. But let's, let's break down some of the symbolism so we can get at the, the main point here. The symbolism would be as follows. The woman represents the people of God throughout the ages. The woman represents the people of God throughout the ages. It's not just the church. It's not just Israel. It's the people of God throughout the ages. And the dragon, as we see from later on in Revelation chapter 12, is Satan. And the child here is Jesus. And we see some clear markers for this from, one, the the reference to Psalm chapter 2. Maybe some of you know your Old Testament very well, or or you've started a Psalms Bible reading plan, you picked up on this. Because we see that in Psalm chapter 2, the Messiah is said to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And we see that same reference here of the baby. We also see clues that this child is Jesus because verse 5 tells us that the child was caught up to God and to his throne, which is a sign of divinity. This is Jesus being caught up to the throne of God alongside the Father. 
So in the death of the child, Jesus, we see him exalted to the throne of God as the king of kings who rules the nations. And then after the child is killed, the woman flees to the wilderness for 1,260 days where she is comforted by God. If you'll remember from some of our previous messages, that 1,260 days, or the 42 months, or times, time, and half a time, they all stand for the same thing in the book of Revelation. It's a period of intense suffering and persecution that God will suddenly bring to an end. That's what those time periods stand for. And we see references in multiple ways. We see the 1,260 days, and then another portion we see the times, time, and half a time. And again, they mean the same thing. A period of intense persecution and suffering that God will suddenly bring to an end. So when the woman flees to the wilderness for 1,260 days, where she is comforted by God after the death of Jesus, this actually represents us right now. This represents us right now. We are living in the days after Jesus' death where the global church, God's people, face persecution in the wilderness as we await the day when God will put an end to all suffering in this world once and for all. We are living in these wilderness days. We are sojourners, the New Testament tells us. This world is not our home. One day, if we are Christians, we will have a home where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more death anymore. Because the old things have passed away and the new things have come. So, if we were to summarize part one, we would say we have Jesus coming forth from the people of God. Satan is ready and waiting to try and kill Jesus. Finally, Satan kills Christ and the woman, uh, representing God's people. The woman then faces hardship and persecution in the wilderness of the world as she is comforted by God until he brings her suffering to an end once and for all. That's kind of a general summary of what is happening in part one of Revelation chapter 12. Let me just offer a couple other general notes on part one that we'll end up applying to the rest of our passage. One of the reasons we can see that Revelation is not meant to be read in perfect chronological order is that the passage we are looking at today is a scene that involves the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, if you've been a keen observer, we've already talked about points of judgment that deal with the, the end times, far after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's this hint for us. Revelation is not meant to be read as this perfect chronological storyline, as if there, there, there's, there's no backtracking or anything. Because, again, we're talking about moments that happened well before something that already happened in this story. You could give other examples of this. We've already seen the fall of Satan, for example, and yet we encounter it again in this passage. I would argue that Revelation, rather than being read as a chronological story all the way through, Revelation's storyline is much more like multiple recapitulations of the same story seen from different angles. It's as if, in some ways, we're looking at similar stories from different angles. Maybe some of you saw the movie Vantage Point a number of years ago. And it's the same event replayed from different angles throughout. And you get different perspectives. You learn different things about the event as you go. And that, that's a little picture of what happens in Revelation. We already saw that as we looked at the seven seals and the seven trumpets. They're, they're playing out similar events. They're giving us different angles and advantage points of similar events. We'll see it again even as we get to the seven bowls in future weeks. But this is just 
this is just good hermeneutics, good exegesis, this is a good way to think about how to read the Bible, is we need to think in literary terms about the Scripture, just like you would any other book. We don't turn our brain off when we read the Bible. We, we want to engage deeply with the Bible. And so we think about what's going on in Revelation storyline, and we see this is not a perfectly chronological story. We are looking at the same story from different angles. And even our passage tonight, kind of a microcosm of this, does the exact same thing. We're looking at the same story from different angles over the course of Revelation chapter 12. And so with that, let's go and look at parts 2 and 3 of Revelation chapter 12. We're going to look at them together. Part, <coughs> excuse me, part 2, which consists of verses 7 to 12, looks at the same scene as part 1, but from a different angle. It's the same scene as part 1, but from a different angle. Rather than looking at the scene from the earth's perspective... We're looking at it from the heavenly perspective. From the heavenly angle, we see the great spiritual battle waging between the forces of God and the forces of Satan. And in part two, we see that Satan is shown to be the deceiver of the world who accuses people before God. He is like this heavenly prosecuting attorney. His job is to accuse people of their sins before the heavenly courts of God. But Satan and his angels are defeated by God's angels through Christ. God's army of angels defeats Satan and his demons through Christ. And in response to this defeat, Satan rages and attacks God's people even more fiercely than he did before. Now, if we were to look at part three, just to kind of tie the bow on, on a summary here. Part 3 continues this narrative and shows how Satan does all he can to destroy God's people. The people who, verse 17 says, are those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. In other words, if you are a Christian here tonight, then Satan is waging war against you and Satan hates you. Let me say that again. If you are a Christian here tonight, Satan hates you. You are not on his side in this battle, and he hates you for it. And one of the things that we see in this passage in part three is the ways in which Satan, in his rage and fury, is trying to destroy the people of God. And we see, if we just look at history at all, human history, Satan has been trying to do this in so many different ways. So many different ways. He has tried to destroy God's people in every single generation. He was like the dragon waiting to kill the child when Satan used Herod to call for the boys age two and under in Bethlehem to be killed at the time of Jesus. If you'll remember your, your Gospels well, you'll remember that Herod was threatened by this coming king, this coming Messiah, and so he has all of the boys in Bethlehem age 2 and under, to be killed. That's not a coincidence. That is a satanic attack. In the same way that God works through our actions and our circumstances, Satan is at work in our world, in our everyday world, to destroy God's people, and we must be aware. Satan was waging war against God's people in Nero, when Nero sought to slaughter Christians and eradicate the movement of Christianity, even pouring tar on them, and impaling them on stakes and lighting them on fire to light his garden at night. That's what Nero used to do to Christians. 
Satan was waging war to destroy God's church and God's people through Nero. Satan was waging war against the church when French Catholics raped and slaughtered and persecuted French Protestant Huguenots in the 1500s and 1600s, burned down their churches. Satan was waging war against the church in Mao Zedong and his communist crushing of the church in Asia and the East. Satan is waging war against Christians in the Middle East in Islamic terrorist organizations beheading Christians year after year. And Satan is waging war against the church in everyday life, in the news that we see. He does it against the church in ways such as causing pastors to fall into grave sin and tarnish the reputation of Jesus. He does it in political polarization that divides God's people. He does it in pornography, in laziness, in consumerism that makes us so lazy that we don't put forth any effort to our Christian walk and we we farm it out to the podcast preachers that we listen to or the worship bands that we stream on Spotify. Satan is waging war against God's people all of the time to destroy God's church. We have to be aware of it. So I want to pause for a second. We're not going to go to our tables, but I want to just... Just raise your hand, shout out your name, throw out an answer. But what are some other ways that you can see in our world that you believe Satan is waging war against God's church? What are some tactics of Satan in our day? So there are many ways, and we could, we could mention many more ways in which Satan is attacking the church. And we must be aware. We are all part of a spiritual battle. And if, if our eyes could be opened a little more we would have our minds blown at the intensity of this battle. So we need to be aware. We need to be on guard. And yet we're not walking into this battle alone. We're not walking in with a spaghetti utensil. We are walking in with something much more powerful, much more piercing. And yet it might not be the weapon you would assume. But look with me at Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. Now how did they conquer him? They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives even to the point of death. Did you catch that? The weapon that we have to carry into battle is our testimony founded upon the blood of the Lamb. Now you'll remember I said that Satan's job his, his tactic, if you will, is to accuse people before God. Remember, he's like the prosecuting attorney, and he's saying, look at so-and-so, look at their sin. God, look at all the ways they denied you. They deserve your judgment and wrath. That's what he does all of the time. He's accusing the brothers and the sisters. He's accusing Christians before God. He's accusing all people before God. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, all of Satan's accusations against you are valid. Every single one. Whatever bit of self-consciousness you might have, whatever sins come to mind that you have committed, that you maybe feel guilty of or mistakes you have made, Satan knows them all and more, and he is bringing them all to God at this moment. 
You have no hope because he is a far better prosecuting attorney than you are able to defend yourself. But for Christians, for Christians, Satan's accusations have absolutely no authority or merit anymore. Because Christians have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. Christians have had their punishment that they deserve to pay paid in full by Jesus Christ in his life and death and resurrection. See, when Jesus came, sometimes we think that the gospel just is his death and resurrection, but it's his life too. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the law of God, something no human had ever done. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law of God, and he therefore earned all of the benefits of the law eternal life, and a right standing with God. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. He, he was our atoning sacrifice, and he bore the punishment and just wrath of God we deserve to pay for our sin. And then he rose again from the dead in victory over sin and Satan and death and all the powers of hell, giving us eternal life if we would put our faith in him. And one of the reasons we talk about this idea of us being the bride of Christ, or we talk about the doctrine of adoption, that we are adopted into God's family is because in both cases, in marriage and adoption, you get the full inheritance. You get what the parents or the husband have earned. That's the amazing thing. And so when you put your faith in Jesus, you earn everything that Jesus earned. You receive everything that Jesus earned on your behalf and his life and his death and his resurrection. Justice has been paid. Forgiveness has been given. And so Satan and his accusations are worthless before Christians. I can remember one time soon after 2020. It may have been at the end of 2020, early 2021. It was a politically, I mean, not that now is not a politically tense time, but uh, you have the, Jan it was right around the January 6th attacks and everything that happened with George Floyd in the prior summer and the uh, presidential elections, and there was lots of political polarization. And I'll be honest, it was a hard time for us as a church. Very hard. A number of folks left, um, just had different political persuasions or thought we weren't political enough as a church, and, you know, it's a choice. It was a tough time. You know, it's hard to minister and love people really well and deeply and have them leave over something that in eternity won't even matter. And I remember there was a man who very fiercely and unjustly began telling lies and making claims that were demonstrably untrue about myself and a couple other pastors here. And he sent a letter to, to Merle and uh, pretty, pretty serious language calling for us all to be fired uh, it was an incredibly hard time. And uh, I was already struggling with some confidence in ministry at that point, and that just about pushed me over the edge. It was one of the, the hardest things ever, and, and, and having to, uh, to tr trying to have a conversation with the person, and they, they wouldn't budge, they, they didn't even want to have a conversation, and it was incredibly difficult. Well, time goes on, and uh, earlier in uh, 2023, individual asked to get together. And I was a little bit kind of nervous about the conversation. I was kind of confused as to what they were trying to accomplish, but I said, yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to get together and talk. And that individual's credit, they apologized. 
said, I, I have said a number of things that were not true, and I need to apologize for that. I'm so sorry. He went to Pastor Merle, said the same thing. And it was interesting, soon afterwards, that, that individual and I, we began, you know, just our conversation changed, the tone changed. We began to text about some ideas, some ministry ideas that the person had that I thought were, were really helpful. And we began kind of brainstorming on a ministry project, started working together. There was, there was total forgiveness there. We were on good terms. And I'll never forget, someone walked by. We were just meeting in this next step room here. And someone walked by and afterwards kind of pulled me aside and said, why are you meeting with that person? You know, and this, this person was standing up for me. They're saying, they said all of these terrible things to you. Why, why would you meet with them? Like, don't you think there's some other motive here? You know, whatever. And, and I had to tell them, no. All your accusations against them are, they're meaningless to me now. There's been forgiveness here. We're working together. It's a great relationship. Like, we're on really good terms. And so all of your accusations mean nothing anymore because there has been complete forgiveness. That's what it's like with us and Satan and Jesus. There has been complete forgiveness for you if you were a Christian. And so all of Satan's accusations, all the things that he wants to throw in your face in God's court, God says, they don't matter anymore because I've totally forgiven this person. Your testimony is a story of how God has forgiven you and changed your life. And testimony for those maybe that, are, that didn't grow up in church or, or aren't Christians here tonight, the testimony is just your story of how Jesus has saved you and changed your life and loved you. It's the simplest way to think about it. Your testimony is your key to being able to say, Satan, every accusation you're throwing at me is untrue because I can point back to this moment, this season, and I can know that Jesus changed my heart and my life and all of your accusations fall short now. Your testimony, based on the blood of Jesus and what he did for you at the cross, is your single best weapon walking into spiritual warfare because every single time Satan wages weapons of shame against you, you can say, Satan, you have no authority here. Only God has authority over me and my heart. And many of us don't think of that. Many of us allow Satan to just ravage us with attack after attack and shame and shame and guilt and guilt because we've forgotten of what we have in Jesus. We've forgotten of the efficacy of our testimony in God's court. And so, honestly, one of the most helpful things we can do is not only remember our own testimony and God's faithfulness, but also hear the testimony of others. And so I want to do something a little bit different tonight. I actually want to spend the next 10 to 15 minutes allowing you all an opportunity to share your testimony, if you feel comfortable, if you're a Christian, to share a short version of your testimony at your tables. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask for someone at the tables to set a two-minute timer, because some of us are like me, and we're long-winded, and we don't want just one person to share. But for those that are comfortable at their tables, I would just ask you to share a very short version of your testimony about how you came to know Jesus and how he has changed your heart and your life. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, it's okay. You, you don't need to share anything. You, you can just sit back and listen. And I would just encourage you, listen to these incredible stories of, of life change that Jesus has brought in people's lives and consider what would it look like for your life to change? What would it look like for you to trust in Jesus and have a testimony of your own? So I want to give you about 10 or 15 minutes. I'll come back up to kind of close the time. 
Someone at the table set a timer on their phone and just two minutes a person um, or so, just take some time sharing a short version of your testimony to encourage those at your table. As you think about the testimonies that you heard and that were shared at your tables, let them be an encouragement to you. Um, don't, don't let, even in, in even a moment like that, Satan might try to tempt you to compare. You know, we, I was talking with the, the, the leaders beforehand. It, it's always flashy to have the one person that was like the drug dealer, the God that miraculously brought to Jesus. It seems like every youth pastor has that story or something like that. But like, if you're just someone that grew up in church and in your mind you have the most vanilla testimony in the world, it is still, still a miracle. When someone is raised from death to life, that is a miracle. If we saw that in this moment right now, we would be in awe. Drug dealer or not, we'd be blown away. Your testimony, if Jesus has saved you, is a miracle. And actually, the story that we all really want is the story of, I've been a Christian for a really long time, and I've tried to follow Jesus for a really long time. So as you think about the stories that were shared at your table, thank God for those. Let them be an encouragement for you to know that no matter where you're at, Jesus can save anyone. It doesn't matter what you've done or who you are. His blood speaks a better word than the accusations of Satan. Use that as a weapon in spiritual warfare so that we, we've used that Martin Luther quote so many times. But again, when Satan throws your sins in your face, you can say, yes, I deserve death and hell, but what of it? Because every time you remind me of my sin, you remind me that Jesus has saved me. And so your accusations mean nothing, Satan. We have to be ready for spiritual warfare. And our passage is a reminder of that. But as we engage in spiritual warfare with our testimony, with confidence, we can remember that we are fighting a battle that has already been won. We, we just sang a song about it, but we are fighting a battle that has already been won. Because of what Jesus has done, he has given Satan a fatal wound. Satan knows his time is short. So he's going to rage against you. He's going to rage against us. He's going to rage against God's people. But Satan's going to lose. And that's a fact. I mean, you think about it. For some of you history buffs, you'll know the story of Winston Churchill. Uh, right after Pearl Harbor. You know, America is attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. Churchill gets the call soon after saying the United States has entered the world, the, the war, World War II. And Churchill, you know, at first he's woken up in the middle of the night. Churchill, at first he's trying to get his composure. And once he understands the message, he celebrates. And Churchill says, the war is won. He said, yes, there will be fighting. Yes, Hitler's going to wage his best attack. Hitler is going to be furious against us. But at the end of the day, with the United States stepping in the, world, the war, the war is won. The war is won. D-Day, put another way, D-Day happens before V-Day. There is fierce fighting, but there's a certain point in which the war is won. And for us as Christians, at the cross, in the resurrection, Jesus has won the war. Sure, there's fighting. Sure, Satan is going to give us his best shot. But at the end of the day, the war has been won. And so we get to fight with confidence. Rather than being taunted by Satan, we get to taunt him. You have nothing to say to me, Satan. You have been defeated, and every single one of your accusations falls short because I am covered by the blood of the Lamb. doesn't matter the intensity of my faith or the amount of my faith. If I have any faith in Jesus at all, 
I am covered by the blood of the Lamb. So if you're here tonight and you are struggling with doubt, you are struggling with shame, but you said, I have given my life to Jesus, I believe even just with a mustard seed amount of faith, I believe that he has given his life for me and he loves me. You are covered by the blood of the Lamb and Satan has no say over you. So as we step into the world, as we step into our lives, as we think about the thousand different ways Satan might try to tempt us, or throw shame in our face, we can remember that we fight for the army of the Lamb, and we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, and Satan has no say over us. If you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, you can't say that same thing. And my encouragement for you would be to think about the stories of life change that you heard at your table. And to think, what would it look like for me to give my life to Jesus? To be covered by the blood of the Lamb, to fight for the army of the Lamb. That I might be able to stand before God and cast down the accusations of Satan. And there is no better decision that you could ever make than giving your life to Jesus like that. And if that's you, we would love to talk with you about what it means to give your life to Jesus and devote your life to Him. But for the rest of us, that are Christians, we can celebrate and say, all hail King Jesus, because we know he has won this war. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And not just King of the kings of the earth, but God, he is greater than all the powers and principalities of this world, both spiritually and physically. God, he has conquered our great enemy, both of Satan and death. And he laid death in its grave. He has defeated the evil one so that Satan has no say over Christians anymore. And God, one day, Satan will be gone once and for all. And we will be able to live in peace if we have given our lives to Jesus. So God, I pray for my friends here tonight. God, if they have given their life to Christ, God, would you help them walk forward in confidence, waging war with their testimony in the blood of the Lamb. They would be able to look back on their story and see the thousand ways and more in which you have loved them and cared for them and taken care of them and that you gave up your only son for them. The God of the universe did that. And that they would walk forward in confidence as they face the war of Satan against them. For all those that are here tonight who are not believers, have never trusted in Jesus and therefore are fighting on the side of the dragon, God, would you draw their hearts to you by your spirit, God, that they would be covered by the blood of Jesus. Fight for the side of the lamb and their eternities would be changed forever. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all he has done for us. May we fight on your behalf and walk forward in the confidence of Christ. We pray all of these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.